Welcome to Oil and Gas Conversations. I'm your host, Adriel Kunle Hassan. Some of the most corrupt countries, according to the Corruption Perception Index, have large extractive industries, which majority of their wealth comes from. Sudan, Iraq, Libya, Venezuela, Angola, Nigeria, and others. Bribery and corruption are becoming increasing concerns for businesses, especially in the digital age. Transparency International identified the oil and gas sector as being perceived to be more likely to bribe than other sectors. In recent times, the oil and gas sector has been subject to numerous high-profile corruption cases. This is not because individuals or companies who operate in this sector are more corrupt, but because there are characteristics of the sector that increase the risks. In this episode, we explore what corruption looks like in the industry and what needs to be in place to curb it. Welcome to this episode of Oil and Gas Conversations. With me today is someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for a very long time. Adaku is with us today. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Thank you so much, Ejiro, for having me. I'm really sorry about the back and forth, but I'm, I'm here for you now. So my name is Adaku Ufere. I'm the Deputy Chief of Party of the USAID-funded West Africa Energy Program. So the West Africa Energy Program, or WIEP, is a Power Africa initiative that seeks to expand supply of and access to affordable and reliable grid-connected electricity services in West and Central Africa. So for WIEP, I manage the daily operations and the project management office across 23 countries in West and Central Africa. But my background is originally in oil and gas law. And I have extensive experience leading multicultural and multilingual teams in the structuring, negotiation, and implementation of energy projects in Africa. So a bit of you know, what I've done before as an energy expert, a business consultant, and a team leader, I worked with governments across sub-Saharan Africa to analyze national energy policies and address legal and regulatory constraints to investments across the energy sector. Some of the transactions I've done across SSA have led a team that facilitated an investment of $500 million into South Sudan when I negotiated the first ever exploration and production sharing agreement ever signed in South Sudan. In Equatorial Guinea, I've worked to facilitate an investment of $2 billion into the country by establishing a full legal and fiscal framework for development, financing, and operation of the Fortuna floating LNG facility, which at the time was Africa's first independent deep water FLNG project. And those transactions actually led to my winning attorney of the year at African Legal Awards in 2017. I've been named one of the 40 and 40 leading lawyers in Nigeria at the Nigerian Legal Awards, um, attorney of the year at the African Legal Awards. I'm a Mandela Washington Fellow. I'm a Yali Power Africa Young Woman in African Power. I've won the Young African Professional of the Year in 2018. I was named one of the 10 most influential Nigerians in the corporate sector one of the 100 most inspiring women in Nigeria, and I'm also an Obama Foundation leader for Africa. And to close that out, my, my qualifications, I have an LLB in law from the University of Nigeria, a bachelor's in law from the Nigerian Law School. I have a barrister at law from the Nigerian Law School, an LLM in oil and gas from the University of Aberdeen, 
and I have a certification in gender and sexuality from the University of British Columbia. So that's a little bit about me. So Adaku, basically, I've followed your career since like your blog. We've seen you, how you've grown and like your experience crossing across Nigeria, South Sudan, Equatorial Guinea. You know, this is more than people even think about doing. And I just wanted to say you are someone that young oil and gas professionals and energy professionals in Nigeria, and I'm pretty sure across Africa look up to. Oh, that is so nice. Thank you so much, Adrian. Basically, it's your diverse experience in the African market that made me think about getting you on this episode. So today Mm -hmm. we're talking about corruption in the oil and gas industry. So the first question I'm even going to ask you, do you think the corruption in because obviously we know there's corruption, you know, in, mm-hmm. in most industries, right? But like compared to like banking and entertainment and, you know, cement industry, do you think corruption in oil and gas is pretty high? Oh, yeah. It's very, very high. But you see, I think the oil and gas industry is at such a high risk for corruption because of how the sector is structured. So consider these characteristics. Oil and gas projects are very complex with many components, exploration, drilling, facility support, services, trading, and it goes on. So it's not a straight line from exploration to retail. In this case, there are many more cooks and there's a higher chance that somebody can pose a corruption risk. There's also a lot of money in oil and gas. An obscene amount of money can be made, and that is usually a very high draw for corruption, especially in in emerging markets. so, which is where you know most of the corruption, a lot of the corruption takes place. Then there's also local content. So now, though this was coined to ensure that IOCs engage as many local individuals and businesses as possible, it has created an opportunity for local officials to extract bribes, to rig contracts, or engage in other corruption. So these factors, the complex projects with many business partners, the frequent contact with foreign government officials, the amount of money to be made, the daunting local regulatory operational requirements, local content, they are all a powerful brew for corruption risk. And that is why. When I think about oil and gas, you know, I think about the extractive industries, Mm -hmm. gold and diamond and things like that. And I just think that basically when there's limited resources and the money you make from the end product is really high, that Mm -hmm. brings in so much competition. Right. So people are like willing to bribe to get access to these things or they are willing to spend money because the money they make is so high that they can spend a lot to get it. Exactly. I always say that when something is going on, there is a supply side and a demand side. So on the demand side, we're talking about. I think you already mentioned it, the government, the state-owned companies, right? I look Mm -hmm. at them as the demand. So if they are not asking for these things, there will be no one giving it to them. What do you think about that? No, I was going to say, I think that's not the only cause. So yes, there's there's the demand for it. But the fact remains that there's people still willing to supply this. Nigeria has so many statutes, like protecting extractives, you know, against corruption, And if you want to go about it the normal way, you can. It might take ages, but you can. But everybody wants to get everything as quickly as possible and maximize the highest reward possible. So even when they don't necessarily ask, they offer. So then obviously there's a great quotient. The offer is just lying there. You take it. So I think both demand and supply in the oil and gas industry are to blame here. And, And before we even started, you know, extracting oil, 
the oil companies, the IOCs have always had um, a reputation for corruption. I mean, look at Iran, look at what happened in Saudi Arabia with Aramco. So, and this is in the 40s, way before Nigeria or other African countries even started. And these, these IOCs went in there looking to be corrupt, you know, looking to exploit already without the countries even asking for anything. That was how they started. And they set the tone for the industry. You just mentioned that this is like a global industry problem. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to Africa, I believe it's blown, I think, out of proportion because I think the industry is the problem, not really the location. Why yes. do you think that when it comes to Africa, we have all these discussions about people not wanting to come into Africa because the corruption is so high, but I feel like it's it's a global industry problem. Mm-hmm. It's because Africa is an easy target. Okay, for example, what country has the highest number of internet scammers? Without thinking, most people will say Nigeria. That's the first thing that will come to your mind. But Nigeria is not even in the top 10. Yeah. So African countries, we suffer from extremely bad public relations. So corruption exists in the global north at as high or even higher rates than the global south. But to hear you told, you think all the corruption in the world exists only here. The corruption that is practiced in Africa, in extractives, uh, to be specific, who fuels it? Is the rich IOCs. And those IOCs are not coming from African countries. Do you think that because there is, I guess, less punishment for corruption that is found out, right? So for example, if you were in the US, right, and a corrupt practice was made public, right? Yeah. You definitely mm-hmm. see, you know, what happens after that, the consequences of the, those actions. But in Africa, you rarely even see it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think I think that's a big deal. And this is not just an extractive, just generally how we are governed. Accountability is a huge issue. I mean, we hear all these stories in Nigeria where someone stole $100 million, and that's the end of it. Or even if the person gets arrested, there's a sham trial, and in three months they're out and they're contesting for senator. So accountability, it's, it's, it's definitely, I mean, because if this happens, say, in the U.S. or the U.K., there's a huge, you know, um, expose, there's Senate hearings, people go to jail. Like, you actually see the people who have done wrong be arrested. And though that doesn't always happen, but at least you see some accountability on their part. But yes, I do agree with you that there are very few consequences for bad behavior here. It's not, it's just, it's just why it's, I guess it's, it's, it looks like it's more rampant. So you already started mentioning it, but I wanted us to like drill down. So what do you think are the top areas in day-to-day activities where corruption is most prevalent? So you know something I honestly can't say. Because like I said in the first question, corruption exists in every component. So from the minute you even start negotiating for the license of the of the oil block, you're already you know, looking to see who you pay off. And then when you start exploring, you're drilling, when you're offering you know, contracts for services, even in, in trying to implement policy in local content, trying to help you know, individuals or local businesses get, get, get work, every single aspect of it is deeply corrupt. So for me, honestly, as someone who's worked across the value chain of upstream, midstream, downstream, it's very, very difficult for me to say which aspect exactly is the most corrupt. I honestly can't say. Okay, so can you share some experiences you've had or you've heard of that, you know, would seem like just status quo or like gray areas? Mm, well, I won't give any personal experiences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know something I know that I've always found really 
funny in Nigeria, in Africa generally, is facilitation payments. Um, so, I mean, it's known as tea money in Kenya or bakshish in Egypt. And that, that term, facilitation payments, it originally it originates from the FCPA. And it covers, you know, payments made to officials to obtain or speed up routine services, which the officials are required to provide. So, and this is not just confined or limited to the oil and gas industry. If you want to go get a passport in Nigeria, how many people who have the money will go through the normal route? You look for someone, you pay an, a little extra and you get your passport in a day. While the normal thing will probably take you a week or two um, or even up to a month. So it's well known that to make things move a little faster, gifts may be required. So everybody, the IOCs, the local companies, the service companies, everybody pays the backsheesh. But then... The why this is in such a gray area is that you can officially report what is essentially a bribe as a facilitation payment. That can go on a balance sheet, that can go on an invoice, and it's not flagged as an issue. That is, I, I, I didn't know about that. I didn't know that you could actually put that on your balance. Oh, yeah. Some, some companies will sign off on it. You can expense a facilitation payment because they understand that's how the work is done in that country. And there's, there's very, I mean, Nigeria, I think, what is it? The Code of Conduct for Public Officers has some wording on facilitation payments. But there's, there's something we call, you know, what is legal and what is in general practice. If the general practice differs from what is statutory required, sometimes it's fine. Sometimes the companies can defend it and they'll just go along with the general practice. Okay, so now that we know that corruption is basically part of the industry, how is it affecting producer economies? Oh, it's 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 really bad. So corruption in oil and gas is a barrier to good governance and to sustainable development in any country. Where that the global north, like developed countries, have locked out is that their governments have existed for longer. I mean, the, the UK has a constitution dating back to the 11th century, you know, and while ours was essentially destroyed by colonialism. So we don't know like, what we were doing in 11th century. And so we've not been able to kind of, we don't have any sustainable government in place, any sustainable systems in place that can override little hitches, which other like countries like the US and the UK have. So that's why like African developing countries, um, Southeast Asia, Central America and Sub-Saharan Africa, they are more vulnerable to corruption. Like you can be corrupt in the US for years and the system does not shake, you know, it doesn't move. But here a little thing will have such a backlash on um, sustainable development in the country, which is why there's this, the so-called resource curse. Now think about it, the US has tons of oil, but or the UK, you know, Norway, Europe has tons of oil, but they don't seem to suffer a resource curse. Why are we suffering it? So, and because it suggests that some of these countries are actually worse off because of corruption and other consequences of natural resource extraction. But then the countries who are suffering are the, the developing countries, not the developed countries. So it's, uh, it's, 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 it's affecting us you know, in so many ways. Our, our policies, our governments are essentially destabilized by endemic corruption. And systemic poverty is exacerbated by this as well, because corruption means only a few people are getting richer and not just you know, richer on a normal scale, but 
obscenely rich millionaires billionaires which shouldn't exist i mean if billionaires exist it means there's people living in abject poverty for a wealthy person to exist a poor person has to exist like there's no way to be rich without having poor people so wealth actually fuels poverty and obscene wealth fuels systemic poverty which is what we have so this is how it's affecting us I, I don't know when we'll ever be able to shake off this curse because it's it's so ingrained in every single thing we do. Like I gave you the passport example, or if a policeman stops you in traffic in Lagos, when you slip in something and you keep going, like we already know the system is oiled in this way. So why do the right thing? I find it very sad because we all know that the money we get from the industry can basically lift countries out of poverty and can mm-hmm. help spread like that wealth can lead to diversification on its own right and it's just sad that the corruption is so ingrained that you are not even getting anything out of it you're not even doing the bare minimum with it it's it's crazy it's just existing to make some people rich using nigeria as a case study it said that our revenue has been stolen and misused since, obviously, for the last 60 years. And mm-hmm. that amount is about $6 billion per year. You see all these things that the, the government is trying to do, you know, implementing a single treasury account for government revenues. But I don't think any of these things have really worked. What do you think? They don't, they don't work. They don't work. It's like... they. Once you create something, it's Nigeria acts like, I don't know, a virus in the body that just mutates to go around whatever, you know, gate, gatekeeping they're trying to do. And, I, and I, I think I saw like a study somewhere in 2012 or 2013 that said Nigeria um, is estimated to have lost over $400 billion to corruption since independence. I mean, that's enough to make every single person in this country, and not rich, because I, like I said, for, for wealth to exist, poverty has to be to exist, for people to have equal access to resources, education, health, you know, food, shelter, everything. That's enough to take care of everybody. Um, so Nigeria is, I think what we like to do is, is, is a lot of face value. It's not to actually implement or do the work, but to launch the shiny committees, to launch the shiny acts and statutes, so, like Nigeria, they've, they've put a lot of measures in place to combat corruption. If if it's like measures and structures, we can take first place. So, there's setting up authorities like the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission and the EFCC, who's supposed to be in charge of investigating bribery and corruption in Nigeria. But we know how that goes. We've seen how the EFCC has been weaponized in political situations. We've seen the fast basically the EFCC has created around fraud or bribery cases. We have the um, the Independent Corrupt Practices and Other Related Offenses Commission, which is supposed to investigate reports of corruption. Again, it's, being, it's used as a political tool. Um, we have the Special Fraud Unit, uh, anti-fraud section of the Nigerian Police Force, which investigates things like cases of bad checks and fraud-related offenses. And I, I will say I've had a personal experience with a bad check where someone you know, paid me um, some money that was being owed with a check that bounced. And I won't lie, I was able to contact that special fraud unit and they handled it. And this wasn't a lot of money, it was what, like about 1.5 million naira um, in 20, what was it, 2016. It was a fee for legal service and the client paid with a bad check. And 
I was told that, you know, because I, I kept, first, I, I think I kept going back and forth to this client for months and they refused to pay. And when they finally paid me the check, I actually got a lawyer because, I mean, I'm an oil and gas lawyer, but I know I don't work in fraud or finance, so I don't really know the rules. So I actually got like a lawyer who advised me to, to take that check and pay it into the bank. And if it bounces, then I can involve the special fraud unit. So I did that and it did bounce. So I called the special fraud unit and they stepped in immediately. Went to the, I was not even in the country. I was already living outside of the country. Went to this person's office. You know, there was together conversations. And I was paid back in about, like, two weeks. I wasn't paid back in full because the person just didn't have the money. But I was paid back about $1.2 or so. And I lost 300000 So that worked for me personally. But then because it worked for me, it doesn't mean it works, you know, generally for everyone. I know there's several instances of cases where it doesn't work especially when it's much greater amounts. There's been instances where they have paid off whoever was supposed to come and prosecute and it doesn't move forward. But this is just an example of these things exist. These things can work. I've personally seen them work. So why do we still have this widespread corruption? We have the Public Complaints Commission. We have the Code of Conduct Bureau. We have the legislative and regulatory provisions, you know, the Advanced Free Fraud and Other Fraud Offenses Related Act, the Money Laundry Prohibition Act, and then the Extractive Industry even has its own act, the Nigerian Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative Act. And this ensures, monitors, and reviews transparency and accountability in the reporting and financial disclosure of extractive companies. So we're not lacking in structures or laws or bodies, what we are lacking is implementation. Yeah. I basically just say, like, why bring up all these policies when nobody follows them? To look like they're doing something. Yeah, maybe. Because now everybody keeps saying, oh, the PIB of 20 years and counting, Mm -hmm. you know, is going to change the way the Nigerian, you know, oil and gas industry is going to work. And I'm just like, well, all the other policies haven't changed anything. So Mm -hmm. I don't know why I bother. I mean, I think sometimes the intention is there. The intention to do good for the country is there. But then the rot is so deep. Right? You need to excise that rot before you can fix it. You can just can't keep using new acts or new agencies to cover what is already rotten. Like, fix the rot first before creating all these excess commissions. So your next question is, how do we fix the rot? How do we eliminate <laughs> corruption? <laughs> I don't even know. I have no idea. Like, I don't think any, you know, it's, I, I feel like things in this world we're in, human beings, there's a dichotomy of, you know, good, evil, light, dark. And I feel as long as good exists, bad will always exist. For, 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 for good to exist, things have to be bad. Because how can you tell something is good if you don't have what to contrast it with? I feel like corruption will always exist, but it can be reduced but not entirely eliminated. So there's research and practice in recent years that have suggested that transparency and accountability can be part of the answer. Okay. So when you're talking about transparency, oil and gas companies need to improve the transparency of how they report revenues and information about anti-corruption programs. More companies, I think you spoke about this earlier, need to publish what they pay governments in each country where they operate. Two-thirds of the world's poor live in resource-rich countries. So they have a right to know how much money their governments get from companies to exploit these resources yeah. and in accountability like i said before by disclosing anti-corruption measures and key organization and financial data so especially on a country by country level because it can't just be one global measure there's actually a 2011 report on 
oil and gas companies um, that made some recommendations that are still very valid today. And I think they said, just a reiteration of what I, I think I already put forward, companies should make public their anti-corruption programs, and this should be subject to voluntary independent insurance. Um, companies should publish details of their subsidiaries, their partners, their fields of operation. Um, governments that are home to oil and gas producers should make that country-by-country country reporting. Like uh, in the European Union, like regulations, international stock exchanges, and generally accepted accounting standards, they mandate that countries report on a country-by-country country basis. We don't have that in SSA. Um, State-owned national companies should introduce internationally or generally accepted accounting standards, as well as publish independently audited accounts. International rating agencies and risk analysts should include transparency measures in their risk evaluation models. Corporate responsibility indices should include reporting on anti-corruption programs, organizational disclosure, country-level disclosures. So now you see why corruption cannot end. Because who wants to do all of this? Yeah. No, com no country or no company wants to tell you the um, amazing amounts of money they're making from oil and gas because they know there will be an uproar. People will say, where is our own? You're taking, it's like the Niger Delta. You're taking all these resources from us and you're making all this money. Yeah. What are you giving to us? So nobody wants to tell you how much they're making. So they'll keep hiding it. And to, to feel this hiding, corruption has to be there. I completely agree with you. Transparency will go a long way. And what we're seeing in, in the country like Nigeria today is that mm -hmm. they are not interested. The, if the people who are controlling these resources and making money from it are not ready to tell us how the money is made and how much is made, I, I don't even see a starting point. So for me, all these policies, as long as those policies don't mandate individual companies or so private companies and the public companies to be transparent, I, I, I just don't see anything changing. Same same here. Same here. It's there's too much reward for hiding and for yeah. not being transparent for people. And because it's kind of like, you know, cutting their noses off to spite their faces. And nobody wants to do that because they're like, oh, you know, this person has made their hundreds of millions. It's my turn. And everybody keeps thinking it's my turn, it's my turn, it's my turn. So why would they want to fix when they are trying to grab as much as they can in the short period they are in charge of these companies? Well, if we think about it, what if they do the other way? So even if you are not transparent, let, let's say that, what about the accountability part of it? So if we find something, we'll make sure that there are consequences for that action. Do you think that might be a good place to start? So at least people mm -hmm. will be hesitant even though they are not being transparent. Yeah, but for you, for you to actually find those things, you have to be transparent in the first place because the trying to find it out is a whole investigation on its own. So how do you get there? So is it which comes first, the, the, the chicken or the egg, you know? And and yes, maximum punishment does work. I know in the, in the 90s when Nigeria had a huge drug problem, um, the government at the time, I think they made the maximum offense for for drug smuggling, um, death by hanging. So even if you were caught with one gram as opposed to someone who was caught with like, I don't know, 100 grams or whatever, you would all die. There was no fine, no imprisonment, nothing. And at that time, it kind of curbed drug smuggling for a while, you know, before it was changed. So yes, accountability does work, but especially in a regulated industry like oil and gas, to get to even get all the way to accountability, there has to be transparency because we will not know who is doing what 
if they are not transparent. But then, so sometimes we corruption, we don't really see it blatantly. We hear whispers, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why this person got this all block is because they paid X, Y, Z, right? That is a whisper that can be investigated further. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It definitely can. And I think it, sometimes it's done, but then along the way, the people investigating are paid off. Or because it, it, it does happen. I mean, we have whistleblowers in Nigeria, right? And yeah. what has happened to those whistleblowers? There was a whistleblower um, who was killed, you know, after he had blown his whistle, so to speak. A few yeah. months later, he was dead. Yeah. So who wants to be that person? When there's so much money at stake, people will do anything to protect it. Mm-hmm. I think Nigeria even has a whistleblowers act or is going through review or something of the store to try and protect whistleblowers. But I will personally have no confidence in such a statute. So in a world where we cannot eliminate or significantly reduce the corruption in the industry, how do you think individuals and companies can manage corruption risk and like navigate this, in my opinion, dicey water? It's like, it's what we already discussed. Being transparent, being open, you know, Ensuring audit accounts are independently audited, having international rating agency, you know, evaluate their risk models. But nobody wants to do that or they do that, but it's, you know, it's not really done right. You just have some company evaluate you and say, okay, yes, you've done everything you should and you've already settled those companies. So we know what to do is to do it as an issue, is to implement it as the issue. But do you think that companies would be successful, right, to be highly successful without participating in one or two things? Nope. It's the way I think nobody can be a billionaire without having done, you know, one or two shysty deals. It's, it's not possible. Like, there's no way you can make that amount of money without depriving someone of something. Because, like I said, for, for wealth, for billionaires to exist, mm-hmm. systemic poverty exists somewhere. So basically, it's just part of the industry. It, it is. It's, that's why I said I don't think it's going anywhere. It's mm-hmm. not going anywhere. As long as people want to keep making their amazing profits, they will never stop. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Adaku. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oil & Gas Conversations. Let us know your thoughts and the topics you would like us to talk about. As always, don't forget to share and subscribe.